us in the years to come together. Anything else this morning? Okay. You might have to look in the, in the uh, table of contents in the front of your Bible. I want you to turn to Zephaniah. Zephaniah, chapter 3. If you had told me last Sunday uh, when I finished up, you're going to preach from Zephaniah this week, I'd have told you, you've got to be kidding me. But I got a verse in my head, and I just could not get it out. I, I hope and I pray uh, that what I have written this week uh, and what I have studied and prepared to preach you this morning will be of some value and comfort and encouragement to your soul. I want you to turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. We're going to look, we're going to read in just a minute. We're going to read verses 14 down through verse 20. But we're only going to talk about just one verse out of this section of Scripture. We're going to look at verse 17. Yeah, I, I, I thought long and hard when I had this thought come into my mind about what I wanted to preach to you this morning. And the, the thing that kept coming back into my mind is this. Throughout our Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, the only thing that he had was the Old Testament Scriptures. He didn't have the New Testament. And all throughout his earthly ministry, he used the Old Testament promises and the Old Testament prophecies concerning himself as the God-sent Messiah to encourage and to enlighten every single solitary object of his love. This is after his death and after his resurrection as he has his apostles gathered around him. It says, "...in beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." Which ones? Romans, Ephesians, no, what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the Psalms, major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets. He expounded to them all things in those scriptures concerning himself, who he was, that he was the promised Messiah. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake with you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Yeah, I, I tell, our Lord was a, a, a God of intricate detail, was he not? Yeah, he, he was in his right mind right up to the very moment he... he Hung his, gave up the ghost, and he hung his head. So much so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said this, I thirst. Why? He'd said everything in this, the Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, they must be fulfilled, all of them. And this prophecy and promise that I want us to look at this morning is no different. Look at our text. Look here at Zephaniah chapter 3. Verse 14, and I would point out to you, notice the way this begins, sing. <laughs> what is this? This is a song. And he tells the daughters of Zion, which is the church in every generation, sing, O, daughters of, sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgment, he hath cast out thy enemy. 
The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee, and thou shalt not see evil any more. I tell you what, national Israel saw a lot of evil things after that. I would say that the Holocaust was evil things naturally. But he says of this sign, what? You will not see evil things anymore. In that day, this is important, in that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not into Zion, let not thine hands be slack. This is our text for this morning. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will say, He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly. Who are of they to whom the reproach of it was a burden? Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, where I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth, when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. Now listen, I know a lot of people, well-intentioned people, that when they read passages like that, they, they think that you know, this is talking about this is talking about national Israel. And I'm going to be very clear up front on this. This, this promise, this song that's to be sung here. It's not some obscure promise concerning the restoration of national Israel. I had to look this up because I want to make sure. In 1948, when Israel declared themselves to be a country. That's not what this is talking about. Nor is it a prophecy or a promise concerning the restoration of national Israel after that so-called that we, you and I were brought up under after the, at the end of the conclusion of that so-called seven years of tribulation. That's not what this is talking about. You know what these verses are? These verses, I tried to look it up. I, I meant to do it before I left the church. The house coming to the church this morning, but I forgot to, and so I couldn't find it. I didn't have enough time. I wanted to find the song of redemption that Moses' sister sung when they came out. But I had to settle for the song of Hannah's, because I, I couldn't find the song of, of Moses' sister. I think his sister's was Miriam, the song of Miriam. But you know what she sang when they came? What song did she sing? She sang the song of redemption. You know what this is? This is a song of redemption is what we're talking about here. And you know who it's sung by? It's sung by all those chosen by God the Father in the everlasting covenant of grace. It's sung by all those redeemed by Christ the Son and His accomplished death at Calvary is His people's surety and substitute. It's sung by every single solitary sinner regenerated and converted by God the Holy Spirit in time under the preaching of the gospel. All of them, without exception, the entire Israel of God sing the same song. And folks, this song is sung because the one true Christ has finished the work to save His people from their sins. Now, how do I know that that's the time of this prophecy? How do I know that? Well, what do the Scriptures say? Not what do I assume, but what do the Scriptures say? Listen to Zechariah's prophecy concerning this same at that time. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Doesn't that sound familiar? That word rejoice means sing, shout, rejoice. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the fi- uh, the, uh, a colt, the foul, the foil of an ass. Where's that? That's Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, according to the Scriptures, not according to what I think, but according to the Scriptures, when was that prophecy fulfilled? Here it is. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughters of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a coat the the foil of an ass. Where's that? Matthew 21, verse 4 and 5. What is this? This is when our Lord Jesus Christ made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem before his crucifixion. You say, well, then it's done. No, because listen to it. This song is applicable to and it's sung by all the redeemed of every generation. How do I know that? Again, what saith the Scripture? In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, it says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us, listen, not just Jews, but people out of every kindred, people, tongue, and nation, who the Israel of God, all of them. He has made us God, made unto our, we are made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign with him on the earth. Not out yonder. We're kings and priests when? Right now. Now with that as a backdrop, I want us to, to just, with laser focus, look at this promise made in verse 17, just one verse. It's all it is. But boy, I tell you what, it is full of truth. Full of truth. Look at our text, verse 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee, mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. You know what, to me, you know where I find a parallel passage to this, this glorious promise made here by Zephaniah, I find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. I, I just love old Robert Hawker. I think his commentary, I like it because he doesn't, he doesn't say a whole lot, but he says a whole lot in a little bit. And on this particular verse, he wrote this concerning the words of the prophet. He said, every word in this verse carries in it something very encouraging to the church and people of God in every generation. And it is an antidote against those fears and feignings they are so readily subject to. Well, if that's the case, 
What's every phrase mean? Well, look at it. Here's the first one. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee, and is is in italics, so it wasn't in the original. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee, mighty. Here's the first thing that should give you and me comfort and encouragement. Who is in the midst of his church? Huh? Who's in our midst? Well, the original word tells us what? The Lord. And if you'll notice, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And like I've told you in the past, anytime you see that word in four capital letters, what is it always translated from? The original word Jehovah. If it's capital L, little O, little R, little D, it's Adonai. And that's always speaking of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. So he tells us that Jehovah is in the midst of the church. What's that word Jehovah mean? It means the existing one. And literally, it's the word, if you look at the original word, it's not even Jehovah like we say it. Say it as J-A-H. It's the, it's the proper name of God. It's who he is. I am. The original word, he says, the Lord, Jehovah, thy God. That's the word in the original. It's the word Elohim, which means, listen to this. This is important. It means not ruler, but rulers, judges, or gods. Elohim, not Eloah, which is singular, but Elohim, plural. And you know what that teaches me? It teaches me the plurality of the true and living God. We have God the Father, we have God the Son, we have God the Holy Spirit. The original word translated in the midst means midst, among, inner part, or the inward part, or literally this, the seat of the thought and emotion. So where does he sit? It? He sits in the heart, mind, and understanding of his people in every generation. The English phrase of thee is mighty, and this is the one that got me when I was looking at it this week, is one word which means strong man, brave man, or mighty man. Wouldn't get that from reading that, would you? That's what it literally means. And so if you put it all together, we can rest assured who's this speaking of. It can only be speaking of one person. Who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Emmanuel being interpreted, God with us. Isaiah declared to this person, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. You know what them next three words are? The Mighty God. Mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. That word translated the mighty in this verse, it's the same word as translated the mighty in our passage that we're looking at. So he tells us in this verse, you're going to call his name what? The strong man, the mighty man, the brave man, God. Our salvation required what? This person. Both God and man, mighty and willing 
and able to fulfill everything necessary to save his people from their sins. Nothing more was required and nothing less would do. Listen to me. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself. How did he do it? By this mighty man, by Jesus Christ. And hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was where? In Christ. In this mighty man, he was reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Where was he imputing them to? To the only one who could bear our sins in his body on the tree. Perfectly and completely. I think the verses in Hebrews even makes it more plain. It says, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one. For this cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare... Thy name unto my brethren. Listen to this. The Lord thy God. Where's he at? He's in the midst. The Lord thy God is mighty in the midst. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. I will sing praises unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And behold, I and all the children which you have given me. Truly the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the mighty God of whom the prophet Zephaniah is talking about here. But notice what he declares next. He says of this mighty God, he said, he will save. You see that? He will save. This isn't an offer of salvation to save you if you'll ask him to do it. Or in the case of my generation, if you won't you let Jesus save you, you'll let him do it. You know what this is? This is an absolute declaration of what he, the Lord Jesus Christ, this man, mighty man, was sent to accomplish. That original word translated, he will save, you know what it means? It means to be delivered, to be liberated, to be saved, not to be put in a savable position, not to be put where we can fulfill conditions. He saved us from our sins. This popped into my mind. I wrote it down into my notes. You know, when our Lord Jesus Christ went into that town and that little man, Zechariah, Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He'd climbed up in that sycamore tree. And he had climbed up because he was curious. He wasn't looking for the Lord of glory. He had heard. He just wanted to see for himself. He's a little statue, little man. Climbs up in a tree. And out of this throng of people, our Lord Jesus Christ walks up under this tree and he looks up at that man in that tree, and he said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house. For as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Now, he was a Jew. But what's he, what is he in reality? He's a, he's a son of Abraham. He's, a, he's one of those given by God the Father to God the Son, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. It wasn't Zacchaeus' choice. <laughs> he didn't sit up on that tree and think, you know, I think I'm going to exercise my free will in this matter. 
What did our Lord do? When he looked up at him and he spoke, remember what, he, remember what our Lord said concerning his sheep in John 10? My sheep hear my voice. And what do they do? They come unto me. And I give to them what I've purchased for them. I've given to them eternal life. Our Lord made him willing in the day of his power is what he did. And you listen to me. Not, not one sinner, not one, whom Christ worked out their salvation by his obedience unto death, can ultimately be lost. Not one. How do I know that? He told me so. All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me, and him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the, will of, this is the Father's will which hath sent me. What's his will? That of all which he hath given me, how much of it? All that the Father gave me. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him or her up at the last day. You can't be lost. It's impossible. If one for whom he came and lived and died can be lost, Christ is a failure, and he's not worthy of our worship. Notice what Zephaniah says next. He will rejoice over thee with joy. <laughs> the original word translated he will rejoice means to exult or display joy. The word translated over thee with joy means mirth, gladness, joy, gaiety, pleasure. Imagine that. The Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty God, rejoicing greatly with mirth and gladness, and joy, taking pleasure in an ungodly sinners, he's saved by his accomplished work of redemption at Calvary. It's amazing. Isaiah put it like this, For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And listen to this, And the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride. So shall thy God rejoice over thee. Get that in your head, children. Huh? The Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoices over us. I, <laughs> there ain't nothing to rejoice about in me. I don't see anything. He said it. I believe it. Because it's settled. But then that brings this question. How in the world can God rejoice in those who by nature, by birth, by practice, and by choice are sinners? Look at our text. Here's, here's, here's what I've been trying to get to since Monday morning when I started working on this message. He will rest in his love. We could spend the rest of our lives right here never exhausted never I hear religious men and women say all the time they make that bold statement about how much they love God and they talk about their love to God as if God loves them because they loved him first nothing could be further from the truth and I thought long and hard before I wrote this next statement down but I believe it with all my heart you know there is absolutely nothing in any sinner by nature 
not even God's elect, regenerated and converted by God the Holy Spirit, that demands God's love to them in our nature. Nothing. And you think about, how do you know that to be true? After every blessing that Paul had brought up in Romans chapter 8, remember he started off? There is therefore now no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus. He had said, all, uh, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them with a called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. Whom He called, them He justified. Whom He justified, them He also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us, right? What, should, what can separate us from God? Tribulation came. Persecution came, famine came, sword came, nothing can. Then he makes this statement. After all those blessed promises, he sums it all up, closes this most important chapter out with it. For I am convinced, I am persuaded, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us, here we go, from the love of God. Where's that love of God? It's not in me. It's not in some change to me, some new nature in me, some sinless principle that's put within me. The love of God, which has He loved me, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why He was so clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. John even put it clearer. John said this, In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Here ends love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son the propitiation for our sin. This phrase in our text, He will rest in the original, it means to be silent, to be dumb, to be speechless, to be deaf. I tell you, what, the only one who could and did satisfy and silence the justice of God is Christ, the friend of publicans and sinners. This is my comfort and yours as well if you're a child of God. The true and living God rests ever and always where? In His love. Which literally means God. That, that phrase, in His love, it means God's love to His people. It doesn't rest in what we've done. It rests in His love to us. And He does it for Christ's sake alone. We read it at Hannah's wedding here a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, however long ago. I've lost track of time, but we all, I've read it at every wedding that I've ever performed. Read it at Matt and M's wedding. Here in, husbands, love your wives. That's good information on Father's Day, is it not? Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it by the washing of water word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. How did we get to be holy and without blemish? In Him. Period. And you listen to me. This love of God to His people, 
It's as eternal as God himself. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, because he's loved us forever, have I drawn thee. Malachi said, For I am the Lord thy God. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. God's love never changes. Ever. Notice this last phrase concerning his bride and his rejoicing. He will joy over thee with singing. The Lord, by the prophet, he's already stated that he's rejoicing over his redeemed sons and daughters. Yet, what is he pleased to do? He repeats himself. This time he says he joys over us. How? He sings. The Lord's singing over us. When I think about that, I think about David when he was coming down. Remember when they got the Ark of the Covenant? Before Uzzah made the mistake of reaching over And he was in front playing his little whatever he played and singing and dancing and rejoicing that they had the Ark of the Covenant. Our Lord rejoices in his bride. Get that into your head. I I was looking at John Gill's commentary, and he used a word to describe this repetition. And it's a big word. It blew my my little mind, but I I had to know. He said he called it a pleonasm is what he called it. I'm like, wild impressing with that big word. But I looked up the definition. You know, it's a good thing about definitions. You can find a definition of a hard-sounding word, and it's usually quite simple. You know what I I don't know why he wouldn't have just used the words that it meant. Why go this way? But according to Webster's, a pleonasm means this, the use of more words than are necessary to convey a meaning. For example, see with one's eyes. That's, that's a lot of words to say what you could simply state with this. Remember that, that, that man said, all I know is before I was blind, but now what? I see. A pleonasm would be, I now see with my own eyes. That'd be too much, right? So he says either it's by fault of style, which that's probably why most people use pleonasms, use too many words. We cloud up the English language. Or it's for emphasis. And I'm convinced that the reason the Lord God puts this twice, this repetition, it's for emphasis. Think about what this means to you and me as God's children. Christ rejoices with joy, and he joys with singing over the objects of his love, his bride, his children. And you know what that shows you and me? This shows us how delighted Christ is in his people. Seeing, here's why he's delighted in us, not anything in us. His delight is in us because what? We were chosen in Him. He delights in us because we were redeemed by Him. He delights in us because what? He's called us by His grace through His Holy Spirit and He keeps us by that same Holy Spirit. And we see that. Let me read you a couple of passages and we'll quit with this this morning. I, this just, just filled me with joy. Man. In Isaiah 62... Verses 1 through 7, the prophet Isaiah expresses this perfectly. Listen to it. We read verse 7 already. For Zion's sake will I 
not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall call. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of God. Thy God, it's his church. Thou shalt no more be called forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. desolate. But listen to it. Thou shalt be called Hezbollah. <laughs> you know what that word means? My delight is in her. He delights in her. And thy land shall be called Beulah. You know what Beulah means? Married. Married to who? Him. For the Lord delights in thee, and thy land shall be married to him. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee, and as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. I have set watchmen upon the walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Yea, they may, that make mention of thy Lord Keep not silence and give no rest till he establish until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Not Jerusalem over there, but Jerusalem which is above. But then I do want you to look at this and look over at Luke chapter 15. And I promise we'll quit right here. Luke 15. Our Lord Jesus Christ shows us how he rejoices over us and the prodigal son, story of the prodigal son. Look at verse 22, Luke 15, 22. But the father said to the servant, what did the son say when he came? Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. But he never got that out. Remember, that was his plan. I'll go to my father and I'll tell him I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. He got out, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He never made that statement about Make me a servant. The father said to him, the servants, not to him as a servant, but to his servant, bring forth the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on their feet, bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us be eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. They rejoiced exceedingly. But look back up at verse 4, the same chapter. What man are you having a hundred sheep? If he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he hath found it. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders. And what does he do? He rejoices. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and his neighbors and saith unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. Thank God for verse 7. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth than over ninety and nine righteous persons that need no repentance. And see, those ninety and nine that need no repentance, you know what they are, right? They're goats. They think they're righteous. But he says there's joy in heaven. I tell you, sinners saved by God's almighty grace.
his irresistible grace. May we use these blessed truths to animate and motivate our hearts to live for his glory in all that we do, always remembering that God ever and always, you know what he does? He rests in his love, not in ours. We love him, sure enough, but only for one reason. The only reason I love him because he loved me first, and he revealed that great love to me in sending his son to put away my sin by his obedience unto death. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. I appreciate your pleasant presence. Lord bless you. Keep you on this holiday. Carry you safely home. Bring you back to be with us next Lord's Day. All of you would close this place.